You know, I, I had thought that this woman at a strip club was my significant other. I had missed the weddings. I was married to the disembodied voices. I was sweeping sidewalks in a filthy black baseball jacket that I had stolen from my uncle um, for a free cup of coffee, which I wasn't even going to get. Wow. My flophouse hotel was in the process of evicting me. I was going into long-term homelessness, maybe incarceration, maybe the grave, you know, who knows. All these, the, the magnitude of these things added up. And I guess what really happened was I determined it was my choices. It, they were my choices that had led me there. So part of me realized that, okay, if my choices got me to this point, sweeping the sidewalks, the hotel ballroom, hey, maybe my choices can lead me somewhere else too. I'm Ren McDonald, and this is The Hope Initiative, a show dedicated to learning about humans on planet Earth, where I speak with everyday people to find moments of success and struggle in their life to help inspire hope in yours. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Hope Initiative. My name is Rin McDonald. Thank you so much for being here. Since I last released an episode on the 23rd of December 2019, so much has happened in the world. But now more than ever, we need stories of hope to show that we can get through any situation. No more is that true than in this week's story with my guest, Ed Cressy. In October 2007... I was celebrating my 15th birthday in year 10 at high school. For Ed, he was addicted to smoking crystal meth at the time. Fast forward 15 years, we shared a bit over an hour in conversation talking about his life and I learned so much from him. I hope you do too and I hope you enjoy. Thanks for being here. Over to Ed. I mean, a hundred years ago, if you if we'd been sitting around a hundred years ago and you told us some guy in Australia and some dude in Boston could be talking, you'd think, ah, it's impossible, you're crazy. <laughs> look at this, we're doing it. We are. We are, it's great. So, we'll get started then. So, I'll officially say, Ed Cressy, welcome to the Hope Initiative. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to be your guest. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Now, we just said there before we begin that you're in Boston or just outside of Boston in Massachusetts over there in the States, 7.30 p.m. there on, on Friday, the 20th of March. It's the 21st of March here in Melbourne, Australia. We're doing this via Zoom, uh, via the internet. I was introduced to you by a mutual friend of ours, uh, David Nabinsky, but I believe you've never met David, right? In person anyway. That's that's correct. We talked via email, but we have never met in person. Yeah, right. So I met David through the, the Hope Initiative, uh, or sorry, the Hope Initiative, when I learned how to do my podcast uh, via the Podcasting Fellowship. How did you meet David? Yeah, I, you know, I, I belong to a, a spiritual community. One of the, one of the members of the community, the, the community, it's very, they're very supportive of my work in criminal justice reform, in my writing. One of the members put me in touch with David who put me in touch with you. So it's, you know, when we put ourselves out there, when we share our stories, when we 
bring value to the world, the world gives back to us. You know, we manifest not so much what we want, we manifest who you are. So individuals like David and, and, and you are, you know, we're putting value and we're putting good out to the world and good comes back to us. I love that. It's a cool little message straight off the bat. Thank you. So to give a bit of context as to who you are, could you just maybe in three minutes or less, I'd like to give a little bit of a timer because I'm sure we could all go on about, you know, who we are. But tell me a bit about your life, if you could start maybe with your f- first earliest memory. But it's an open, open slather for you. Absolutely. I love the three minutes. This is great. Yeah. Time. Very, very important. So I'm, I'm setting my timer here. Okay, three minutes, and you say release memory. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna stop you. Bang on three minutes. It's just a, a bit of a ballpark <laughs> number, but yeah, earliest memory. If you want to start there, from when you were a child, or whenever, whatever comes to mind when I ask that. No, it's great. I, I love the time limit. I love the time. I do a lot of Toastmasters. I don't know if you're familiar. They have Toastmasters in Australia. Yeah. So yeah. they give you strict parameters on time in order for, for just that reason to force us to be concise with our communications. This is great. Nice. Okay. I'll, I'll start with one of my earliest memories, mm. if, if that works, which is reading my assignments in English class in maybe fourth grade or fifth grade or something like that. The teachers would assign us. We'd have to write a short story. I would get up to the front of the room, read what I'd written. And these were some of the first times I felt like a worthwhile person in, in my school days because I was just a weird kid in a lot of ways. I couldn't fit in with the others. I would cry very easily because I was sensitive. I loved to read. I would go, come home from the library with these big stacks of books I could barely see over. Uh-huh. I was uncoordinated, couldn't compete in gym class or on the athletic fields. Reading, uh, writing and, and telling these stories and reading aloud one of my first memories of being like, I, yeah, you know, I, I can contribute because the bullies who would punch me or mock me on the playground, they would come up to me after I'd read a story and say that they, they liked what, what I'd written. You know, so th- this was a, like a remarkable shift from that ostracization, from the un- being unable to fit in to feeling like I could do something worthwhile. That's what led among other things, to my dream of becoming a writer. Going back to almost, almost as far as I can remember, my dream was to always bring value to others the way that so many incredible writers brought to me. The, the books I would read when I was a kid, they brought me solace. They made me feel that uh, you know, I was part of something. The, the world of fantasy, too, was always more attractive than the world of reality. Mm. What happened was, a few years later, when I was 14, I found another way to feel of value, which unfortunately was drinking. Got yeah. drunk for the first time when I was 14, became a heavy drinker when I was 16. Soon after that, got into very heavy drug use, marijuana, cocaine, amphetamines, uh, ecstasy, acid, mushroom, whatever. Anything that just bring me out of myself because I was always that bullied kid in my mind. I was always that bullied kid who couldn't stand up for himself and that dream I had of becoming a writer that got pushed that, that got buried way under just an avalanche a blizzard of drugs intoxicants um, you know quick relation like meaningless based relationships uh, material things 
So for about 20 years or so, I pushed aside that dream of being a writer in favor of doing the easier thing, which required less discipline, and that was getting wasted on drugs. Wow. Two minutes and 42 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I wasn't, I wasn't even keeping count myself, but there you go. So writing then and reading, what, what did you like to read as a young child? What, what was it? Was it fiction? Did you like to read you know, about business? I'm, I'm big on personal development myself, but I can't imagine a young child picking up too many personal development books. What, what did you like? I, I didn't get into the Dale Carnegie uh, until a little bit later on in life, but today I love personal development. Back then, absolutely fiction. I would read the Hardy Boys. Uh, you know, they had a long a number of uh, Hardy Boys mysteries. I would read Essie Hinton, who wrote The Outsiders and Rumblefish and some other books that got made into popular movies. I would read uh, The Last of the Mohicans, which at the time I couldn't really understand, but my dad would read to me. You know, the house I grew up in had a lot of books yeah. because my parents, they're retired now, but they were both teachers. So right. for me to picture my home without books is like picturing it without floorboards or a roof. You know, mm -hmm. books were such an integral part of my life. In fact, I even, uh, my mom used to teach nursing. So I would get uh, the medical textbooks. And even before I could read, I would flip through and look at the colored plates of the anatomical drawings and whatnot. Wow. Fiction, when I was a kid, yeah, fiction was, was, definitely, was definitely it for me. I remember going to the library once and trying to check out Less Than Zero which if you're familiar with, is a Brett Easton Ellis book about the, about the teenagers who are uh, cocaine, big cocaine users in Los Angeles. Okay. It got published in, I think, 83 or so, or may, maybe earlier, maybe 80, whatever it was. And I, I didn't know what the book was about, but I remember the librarian not allowing me to check it out. You know? <laughs> and that was kind of like, whoa, what is this? What, there's a book I'm not allowed to read? You know, what's, what's going on here? And of course, later, it, myself turning into a cocaine addict, that's kind of ironic that that sort of forbidden mystery of Brad Easton Ellis's book, uh, how, how that kind of tied into my life uh, a little bit. So to get back to your question, yeah, mostly fiction when I was a kid. I loved it. Yeah. Okay, cool. And then what did you, what did you write about? Did you write stories to get out of your, your being bullied in your adolescence? Did you, yeah, w what were the things you liked to write about? Yeah, I wrote one story about, it, it was a satire of an Edgar Allan Poe story. And this, the, the Poe story is called, the, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, The Cask of the, are you familiar with Edgar Allan Poe? I'm not, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's all right. The Cask, so Poe wrote a story called The Cask of the Amontillado or something like that. So I wrote a satire and I called it The Can of the Coca-Cola. And it was about a bullied kid who kind of gets revenge on his bullier. This was a way of kind of making my fantasy come true on the page. Right. So whereas I could not stand up or I would not stand up, up against my own bullies in the story I wrote, the kid stands up against his bullies. Mm -hmm. And then I wrote a story about a superhero. So here I could kind of make myself, it, this, I wasn't the superhero, but by writing about a superhero, I could kind of, not give myself an alter ego, alter ego, but really escape painful surroundings by writing something out of my imagination. Much later, years and years later, when I got very heavily into methamphetamine and the psychosis I was in, these stories that my mind wrote became terrifyingly real. 
very, very real. So whereas when I was a kid, I would write stories that were not really about me, but they kind of were. When I was in methamphetamine psychosis, my psychosis wrote this incredible imaginary story that made me into absolutely the central character, but I lost all grip on reality. It was a really remarkable experience. It was awesome's not awesome in the maybe traditional sense of the word, meaning uh, awe and terror was, was that methamphetamine psychosis I was immersed in. So probably there is a root cause back in uh, childhood. Yeah, right. Now, we're going to come on to it, but you, you are now a writer. You've got a book coming out, which is called My Addiction and Recovery. Just because you were done with drugs doesn't mean drugs are done with you, which I think is a really interesting you know, subject or, or subline to, to the overall book. But back to when you said you were 14, it was the first time you had alcohol. You, yeah. you also mentioned both parents are teachers. What led you to, to start drinking and then ultimately getting into drugs at such a young age, do you think? Yeah. If you're struggling with addiction or addictive behaviors, look at the association. So by that, I mean, to answer your question, what led to my drinking was the first time I got drunk and the first time I felt socially accepted were at the same time. Mm. It was at my aunt's wedding. There was a wedding reception. My cousin took me aside. We had a purloined bottle of champagne. And I remember not so much drinking the champagne, but I remember the feeling. I remember, you know, we were watching a porno movie and I could interact successfully with my cousin and his friend. And I felt like the jokes I was making, people were laughing with instead of laughing at me. So there was that very strong association between intoxication and feelings of acceptance. The next time I got drunk was, I don't know, I was 15 or so. I got blackout drunk on a family vacation in Germany. Same thing. I was sitting with my cousin around a picnic table under a tent at this German beer fest, and people were laughing and singing in a language I didn't understand. It was German, and they had these big clay steins of beer, which was just this delicious uh, German, very strong, stout, um, you know, solid type of beer. I don't know if solid's the right word, but you know, this is a great German beer. But what I really remember was the feeling, the feeling of these kids surrounding me. They accepted me. They they made me believe I was one of them. Yeah. That strong association with the German beer, the intoxication, feelings of acceptance, discontinued for a couple of years until they became one and the same. And it was if you're struggling with addiction, or an addictive behavior, think of what you might be associating your addictive behavior with. Because for me, I, I had that very difficult to break association between one thing that I always lacked in my life, social acceptance, and getting drunk, and later that getting high on drugs. Yeah, right. And then when did it get to, you know, harder drugs than alcohol than say, you know, you, you mentioned cocaine, methamphetamine, ecstasy, when did that start? Were you still a teenager or were you, you know, a young adult by this point? I went to college. I, I had done well on the standardized tests in high school. I was able to leave high school a year early and start college. My freshman year in college, I was relatively young. I was 17. I think most people don't start college until they're 18. I used Coke the first time in college, so 17. 
then I, you know, I kind of dabbled in it at first, but it quickly turned into a very, I, I turned into a heavy Coke user, maybe when I was 18 and 19 years old. I just like to get, I just like to get more, you know, whatever drug would get me more, more high or, or more drugs, or more out of myself. The, the challenge for me and for a lot of others is we're not using, we're not really using drugs to get high. We're using drugs to become a completely different version of ourselves. I, I use drugs so I could be a whole nother person because I, I hated myself. I was, again, I was always that bullied kid. It, some, it deep, in my, deep in my person, I, I was always that bullied kid. Yeah. There aren't enough drugs in the world to become a whole new person, but we can kill the person we are now. Not literally kill, but we can do enough drugs to destroy who we are. And that's what I was trying for. I didn't know it at the time, but subconsciously, I wanted to destroy the old me, become someone new. That can never happen. There just aren't enough drugs. I'll still always be me. That's what I was chasing for years and years. It wasn't until I got into recovery that I learned these things. But looking back, I see that was, that was the core, one of the core issues of my addiction. Right. And thinking back now, how old are you now, by the way? I'm 50. 50. Oh, congrats. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so you're 50 now. So it was about 36 years ago when you first sort of had your first drink at your aunt's wedding. How or when, maybe is a better way of asking it, when did you feel like it was possibly out of control? Because you started using a lot of drugs. But was there ever a point where you're like, I'm out of control. This addiction has got me, got me good. Did you ever have that thought? I don't know that I had that thought. I remember once being high on acid in New Orleans at this jazz club. This incredible jazz orchestra was playing. It was right around Christmas time. So there were these, this holiday theme and a singer came out. He was wearing, I think, uh, pajamas. Like he had just gotten up Christmas morning, you know, was going to open his presents. And they, I remember the, he had a violinist. And, or a fiddle player, and the fiddle, I was in front of the stage, and the, the fiddle, the bow was this bolt of lightning, you know, because I was so high on LSD. There came a point in that night when I was outside on some, I somehow got outside on like a, a, a railing or, or something outside, like a, a height, and, and I couldn't tell whether it was real or not. I mean, I, I wasn't sure if I was still in my mind or if it was... Uh, a fantasy or something and it was very dangerous because I was outside and I, I could have fallen off I don't know if I I don't know what had happened but that break from reality in New Orleans I remember it's one of the first times and I said to myself whoa you know maybe things are going a little too far unfortunately I kept doing drugs for many years after that I think right. for me I, every day, I, I remember I lived in this apartment that had one of those little garbage chutes. You kind of open the little door and you put your trash down and yeah. it shoots down into the basement. Every Saturday morning or Sunday morning, I would open that chute, put my cocaine, my cigarettes, maybe my vodka or whatever into that chute and listen to it bang off the sides of the metal until it fell down and landed in the trash. Every Sunday I would do that because that was the last time I was going to get wasted. I was quitting drugs. I was quitting smoking. Every following Sunday I was doing the same thing. You know, I could quit doing drugs, 
I'd quit a hundred, I quit a thousand, maybe a million times. I quit, not a million, but I quit, you know, thousands of times. It was just very hard to stay quit because drugs for an addict are usually not our problem. Drugs are the attempt at a solution. So even though I, I quit drugs every Sunday, I was not dealing with my core issues, which were, which were I hadn't pursued my dream of being a writer. I still was that bullied kid. Until I learned how to deal with those core issues, drugs, I, I, it was almost impossible to quit drugs because by quitting drugs, I had no more solution to my true problem. Yeah, well, I mean, that's interesting in itself. So every Sunday you would just launch all your, all your stuff down the, the garbage chute. Where... Yeah. We call them a bin here in Australia, right? Which rhymes with my name, Bin Rin. I used to get bullied in school with that name. But anyway, <laughs> how, by what day in the week? So if you were getting rid of them on a Sunday night, at what point would you be back on the gear? Like, was it the next day? Was it Tuesday? Like, how? Yeah. How did that process work? Yeah, it's probably Monday. <laughs> I didn't even make it to Tuesday. Wow. Yeah, because when, when we use drugs or any addictive behavior as a solution, when we're taking our attention away from our true problems by getting high or by gambling or being in unhealthy relationships or video games or pornography or whatever our addictive behavior may be, it's very hard to give that up without, it, without finding a new solution. Mm-hmm. For me, the new solution was spirituality. The new solution was becoming a writer. A new solution was learning to give to my communities instead of just taking. But until I found all that, it was very, very difficult to quit doing drugs because it meant giving up uh, an answer to my problems. And the insidious thing about drug addiction is that drugs absolutely work as a solution. They take us out of our, our current situations. They give us a means to tamp down our problems. They are a means of escape. They absolutely work for a long time. But almost 20 years in my case. But when drugs fail as a solution, they often fail catastrophically, which is what happened for me. I ended up locked up in, uh, I was stripped naked and locked in a padded cell for observation because I was uh, so far, I'd broken into my relative's home and uh, burglarized valuables for meth money. I uh, would would eat food at times that I found outside in the streets. I would uh, cheat welfare to, to survive. This was the life I had sunk into. The, um, this, and even though this life is a horrible life, it was a comfortable set of circumstances that were that were very hard to leave because I was doing the drugs as the solution. Wow. So let's touch on a few things you said there. You broke into some relatives' house for meth money, vandalized and burgled a bunch of stuff, and ended up stripped in in a padded cell yeah that sounds sounds horrible what's the time from when you were on that acid trip at the jazz club to that point how many how many years apart because you you did say you were doing drugs for another couple of years do you have any any vague sort of timeline there 10 years decade at least yeah and at what point did you do you feel like you were at maybe rock bottom? Do you, can you recall the point of being at rock bottom? The last night I used meth, I was the only clothes I owned really were was this filthy tuxedo because I had worked at the strip clubs in San Francisco. 
and uh, the employers there, I worked at the Larry Flint's Hustler Club. I spent the summer there. They treated me very well. You know, they gave me a chance and I made them pay for it, man. You know, I was a terrible employee. I stole from them. I would show up drunk and high. They fired me and rightfully so. I, I had this filthy black tuxedo. I was living in a Flophouse Hotel. The, the tux was about the only thing I owned. I, I had, you know, maybe a couple other items of clothing, but basically I, had to, I was nowhere near employable. I was, uh, I shambled into this fancy hotel, found myself at the doorway of a hotel ballroom thinking I should, you know, I wanted to go in and get something to eat because there was a buffet table. The hotel happened, the, the ballroom, what was happening was there was a wedding reception. Just like when I was 14 years old and I got drunk for the first time at a wedding reception. And I was standing there, it was October 19, 2007. I, it occurred to me at that point that in the past few years, five couples had gotten married. Ten of my closest friends. One couple had asked me to be their best man. Do you know how many of those weddings I attended? Zero. Yeah. Yeah. Not one. And, and, and at the time, too, I was hearing these, I'd been hearing these disembodied voices for years. I would, my reality was such that I considered the disembodied voices my spouse. You know, I was married to these disembodied, because I pushed all human beings away. Yeah. It was at that point when I didn't go into the ballroom, I left, I went home, I smoked the last of my meth. I woke up the next day, began working very, very hard. Started going to 12-step meetings, two, three, sometimes four meetings a day. I began volunteering in my communities. I found a couple of part-time jobs until I could get my resume together and find a professional job. I worked incredibly hard, especially at the pursuit of spirituality. I was taught how to meditate. I began meditating for, I don't know, an hour every day. I threw myself into fitness, anything to leave behind that me who had been standing at that hotel ballroom entrance. The same factors that drove me to addiction, the, the needing to escape, the using it as a solution to my problem, I let those same things drive me through recovery. I escaped my past. I imagined a better version myself and I worked for it. I used the same things that made me a seemingly a near hopeless addict to bring me up to recovery, to pursue and achieve my dreams and ultimately to serve those around me. That's fantastic, mate. So October 19th, 2007, you're standing there and it's almost like you have this epiphany that you hadn't gone to these five weddings of your 10 closest friends, one of which asked you to be the best man. Now I've been a best man at one of my best friend's weddings. And I've also been in the bridal party of two other weddings. And I know that it is a great thing. And, and you do too, even though you weren't involved, but it seems like that's the moment that was yeah, it's the thing that, that sort of stopped you from, from continuing on the path. You, you saw that. I was expecting you to tell me you, you busted into that wedding and helped yourself to the buffet and, and ended up in jail. So it's good that didn't happen. It's good that you didn't you know, ruin that person's wedding in a sense. But you did say that you went home and you smoked the last bit of, you, you know, took the last bit of your drugs. Why do you think you had that thought at the wedding and then still went home and finished it. Why couldn't you just cut off that last bit? 
That's a good question. I don't know. I think maybe after I smoked the rest of that meth and went to sleep, something kind of sunk in, something at a subconscious level. Mm. I had, up till that point, I had pursued getting sober a couple of times. I'd gone to rehab a couple of times and, you know, quit here and there, made some concerted efforts. Whereas when I would throw that stuff down the bin, the, the Coke and the cigarettes, that was that was not really a concerted effort to stay sober. In the, in the years leading up to the wedding, things kind of got worse and, and worse and worse. You know, they say when it comes to drugs and drinking, it starts out as fun, then it's fun with problems, and then it's problems. That's the way addiction often progresses. Yeah. To, to get back to your question, I think I. I'd experienced enough of what recovery was, enough of what a pursuit of spirituality might be, so that, you know, I smoked that meth and then something just kind of sank in. It's a, a process of trying over, you know, they, they, life's not about how many times we fall down, life's about how many times we get up. Yeah. And I just needed to get up time after time after time. I re, you know, I remember too, the, the next day, uh, October 20th, the yep. day after I smoked that last hit of meth, I was outside in front of my Flophouse Hotel. I was sweeping the sidewalks. That's what I used. I didn't have any money, so I would sweep the sidewalks, hoping that when I swept all the way to the corner, the cafe owner would give me a free cup of coffee. Huh. But it never happened. It happened maybe once. You know, I would see. I was sweeping, and it was the, the detrius of the night before. And I remember looking down uh, on the sidewalk, and there, I used to live in this area of San Francisco where there were all these strip clubs. I used to really like to go to the strip clubs. And as I mentioned, I worked for a strip club. I had at, at one of these strip clubs, there was a woman who was my girlfriend, or so I thought. You know, she was, this, uh, she was a great woman, a really a, a fantastic person. She wasn't my girlfriend. I allowed myself to believe that. Yeah. The point is, I, I look, as I was sweeping the sidewalk on October 20th, I looked down, I saw a flyer, and it was a picture of her. Picture of the woman, and that's something at that point kind of hit me, thinking, you know, th this woman, the, the heights of delusion to which I'd allowed myself to drift, maybe settle in at that point. You know, I, I thought that this woman at a strip club was my significant other. I had missed the weddings. I was married to the disembodied voices. I was sweeping sidewalks in a filthy black baseball jacket that I had stolen from my uncle um, for a free cup of coffee, which I wasn't even going to get. Wow. My Flophouse Hotel was in the process of evicting me. I was going into long-term homelessness, maybe incarceration, maybe the grave. You know, who knows? All these, the, the magnitude of these things added up. And I guess what really happened was I determined it was my choices. It, they were my choices that had led me there. So part of me realized that, okay, if my choices got me to this point, sweeping the sidewalks, the hotel ballroom, hey, maybe my choices can lead me somewhere else too. That's when I decided to make the choices of working very, very hard and going through the 12 steps and getting a job. I understood the full potential of my own choices. Mm. I saw where they had led me, and then my imagination caught on and said, oh, well, they can also lead me up out of that too. Wow. So you still had enough sense to know after, I, I'm estimating, 23 years of alcohol and drug addiction from the age of 14 to 37 based on my mental timeline that I'm doing here whilst we're talking, that you still had enough, yeah, sense to go, 
look at all these things I've created that are just delusion, you know, because I think going back to when you were writing your stories, you're an imaginative guy, you know, and imagination is a great thing. But I think there's a point where we, you know, imagination's over here and delusion can be over here. And, you know, drugs led you to that path of delusion, but you still had the sense sort of the analytical capacity to view these things in your life. That's what it sounds like to me. I'm not trying to sit here and, and sort of, <laughs> you know, criticize your life in, in, a, in a way or critique your life for a better term. But I think that's really good and well done on, on stopping from that day. Just take that moment to say, yeah, well done. So it led you to, to this, part, this path of spirituality. Let's talk about that. Where, where did you go from October 20, 2007? I had gotten to a point where my addiction robbed me of everything of a material nature. Or a better, perhaps more accurate way to put it is I had thrown away everything of a material nature. I had thrown away my life savings. I had thrown away a career with Genentech, which is a biotech firm. It went on to become the number one best company in America to work for according to Fortune magazine. They treated me very well. I'd had a career there for five years. I threw that away. I'd owned a home in San Francisco, beautiful home in a beautiful city. I threw that away. I had no more relationships. I pushed everyone away. I had no, you know, I didn't own anything. Addiction took away everything of a material nature. The only thing left really was spirituality. Looking back, I understand, I've been taught to understand that addiction has a purpose. Addiction pushes us along pathways we otherwise would never have undertaken. For me, it was spirituality. I never, you know, I would say things of a spiritual nature, like, hey, you know, I, I'm a generous person. That was, it could have been true on the surface, but at a deep core level, I was just a selfish individual, afraid to deal with my own fears and my own securities, afraid and lacking the discipline to pursue my dream of being a writer. So I had very, I had nothing of material nature and my spiritual, I, the only option really was spirituality, which I pursued when I began to understand concepts such as the possibility of an afterlife, that concept prevented me from taking my own life. I used to, you know, I would fantasize. I had a 357 pistol and I used to fantasize about putting a bullet into my head. This was after I quit meth. Because wow. now, again, without the solution that was drugs, I have to deal with my problems and suicidal depression, wanting to, to put that bullet in my head or jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. This was a problem I had to deal with. I didn't have drugs anymore to deal with it. I had to deal with obsessions. I was obsessed over my body image and my weight, which is going back. I was 50 pounds heavier then than I am now. And this is going back to my childhood and, and feeling the negative self-image from the my days being bullied and unable to fit in. These problems could not have been solved with anything of a material nature. You know, no job, no home, no car, no motorcycle, no bank account, no nothing like that is going to solve these problems of suicidal depression and, and self-image. I had to pursue spirituality. That addiction really left me with little other choice. It's funny how the universe, not funny, ironic, how the universe works because now spirituality is the number one thing in my life. I remain 12 years after I began my pursuit, very much a beginner. You know, they say, uh, Suzuki says, uh, 
in the beginner's mind are many possibilities and the expert's mind are few, right? I learned, I learned to remain a beginner. I, I learned to pursue a constant path of meditation, reading spiritual texts, talking to people, becoming part of communities. It was these things. And like you mentioned, like you were kind enough to mention, the subtitle of my book, just because you're done with drugs, doesn't mean drugs are done with you. Uh, I discovered it's just when I quit meth, the psychosis that I was in, it got much better, but it never went away. Even to this day, I experience episodes of schizophrenia, flashbacks, things like this. I've learned to live a meaningful life regardless, yet um, it was sp- I would still experience episodes of extreme paranoia around the FBI. W- what had happened was I inadvertently befriended a 9-11 hijacker, or so I thought. You know, when this was in the year 2000 when I went to Bangkok. So my psychosis created this whole uh, conspiracy theory. And that's what explained the FBI, uh, why the FBI was after me, and, and, you know, in my mind, why the yeah. FBI was after me. These, these thoughts, these delusions, these deep, paranoid, terror for, uh, terrible fears dogged me long after I quit meth. Spirituality was the way out. When I could grasp onto that, what would first was a flimsy read of spirituality, I could use it to pull me out of the murk, out of the depths, out of the miredness of this depression, this paranoia, this psychosis. Yeah. That's what led me to a life. That's fabulous. Now, talk to me about a bit in a bit more detail what the spirituality, what it looks like for you, because you said that it was sort of the only thing that stopped you from putting a, putting a bullet in your head. And you, you had these, these images, these thoughts of doing that, yeah. And that, that stopped you because I was going to ask, you know, did someone help you? Did someone stop you? But obviously you've, you've touched on the choices that led you to the life of drugs and alcohol and that addiction. You knew that you could make choices to change that, which I think is a really good message to get across because I'm a big believer in that everything that you are and that, you know, your, your circumstances are is a choice. And sure, things can go against you. You can have bad luck, but there's also good luck. And I think all of that stems from choices. So you made that choice not to put a bullet in your head and it was down to, down to the spirituality and that there was, I guess, an afterlife, which I, I certainly subscribe to that belief as well, that there is more after this life that we're in. You know, I don't really like the phrase YOLO. It's not a thing. I think there is more than one life, right? Yeah. But tell, me, tell me about that if you'd care to share what, what yeah, your spiritual practices look like. Yeah, well, Rin, it's, it's so true what you're saying. You know, if nothing changes, then nothing changes. If we keep doing the same old thing, we keep getting the same old thing. If we don't like our circumstances, which it was certainly true for me, one thing's got to be true. Something has to change. Mm. And if we go from there, we understand that if either my circumstances have to change or I have to change. And one of them, one of those two is a lot easier than the other. You know, it's very unlikely, it's, it's unlikely the world's going to change for me, but I have a lot of choice to, to change myself. The way I look at, there was, a, I had an amazing spiritual teacher who, and, and for the, you know, for your audience, the, the, what I can encourage you to do and your suggestion, if it works for you, is really just explore. Talk to as many people as you can. Read as much as you can. Podcasts. Uh, you know, Rin, your, your show. Anything that puts forth ideas, accept what works for you 
and discard the rest. You know, listen, you're going to get your buttons pushed. You're going to get challenged. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. Explore as much as you can. Latch on to what works for you and the rest, you know, you can put that aside. To get back to your question, I had one spiritual teacher who convinced me that if I were to take my life, I would have to regress backwards through many lifetimes. I didn't even want to repeat this lifetime, much, much less go backwards. So as much as I wanted to take my life, that spiritual teaching, because of the teacher, the teaching itself, if I'd heard it anywhere else, maybe I would have accepted it, maybe not. But because this particular spiritual teacher resonated so well with me, because of the things he had done and the person he was, for your audience, you know, if you're seeking spirituality, find that teacher who resonates with you. And those are the teachings you're going to accept. For me, I, I accepted that belief in suicide and, le- and past, having to repeat past lives. And thankfully I did, because otherwise I almost certainly would not be here today. Wow. To, to kind of sum up how I feel about spirituality, if we imagine an ant, like an insect, an ant, you know, imagine that ant is crawling along. It's on your computer keyboard or on your desk or whatever. There are a lot of things we can do to that ant. We can feed it. We can pick it up and take it outside to its anthill. We can crush it. You know, we can burn it with a magnifying glass like you used to do. If you're inside, you can't burn it with a magnifying <laughs> glass. But, you know, we, we can affect that ant's life in many ways. What we cannot do is cause that insect to understand what it is to be an ant versus what it is to be a human being. We just aren't able to communicate with that ant on that level. Right. Right. Even if we wanted to, we couldn't. I believe in many ways I'm like that ant. There is a force out there that can act upon me. That force can affect my life in many ways, but that fo- I'm just not set up to communicate with that force in a right. way that can allow me to understand what that force is versus what I am. Right. Just like, like that like ant wife, can't like understand me force. as a human. Right. Sorry to cut you Sorry. off. I'm just engaging with you. You, do you mean sort of like a, a higher higher life force in a, in a sense? Absolutely. A higher life force, a higher power, the universe, karma, yeah. uh, God, whatever name we, we want to put on that force. It's, I believe that force exists, but I'm just not set up to understand it anymore that that ant is set up to understand me. Right. Do you think by doing certain practices that you could be able to communicate to that higher force or understand it more? In this lifetime, I don't know. Perhaps. I do see a lot of things. I, I look for synchronicities in life. I look for signs from God or the universe or whatever. I don't think, I, I see a lot of these signs. I don't necessarily believe it's because I'm special. I think it's because I'm looking for, for things of a spiritual nature, whether they're angels or interdimensional, interdimensional beings or signs from the universe or whatever label we want to put on them. I, it's, it's like uh, these synchronicities are like, if you've ever gone hiking in the woods, sometimes you'll be hiking along a trail and you'll see a, a spray painted circle on a tree ahead. Maybe it's, maybe it's fluorescent or maybe it's colored blue. And you know that if you go to that spray painted circle, you'll be on a trail and you'll see another spray painted circle a little bit further down the trail. And you can't necessarily see the top of the mountain because you're on a hike and the hike might be miles long. But as long as you can get to that next spray painted circle, you can make it all the way to the top of the mountain. And these signs from the universe or signs from angels or whatever they might be, 
I look for them, I see them, and wherever these signs come from or whether I, I'm, my subconscious is seeing them as signs, whatever it is, I believe there's a path up a mountain. I believe there's uh, something, maybe not in this life, but in the next, there's a, a mountaintop up there. And I just try to stay on the path as best I can. That's awesome, man. That's really cool. Being like feeling meta, you know, like this is really big. Um, yeah. Do you feel that like not in this lifetime for yourself, but do you feel that others could or, or have achieved that in this lifetime that you've experienced? Enlightenment? Sure. Yeah. I think they say a lot of people have, right? I don't know about a lot, but I, I'm, it's, I'm by far from an expert on the subject, but don't, uh, don't, aren't there people who, who, are, uh, who are enlightened beings who exist on this earth? I mean, yeah, sure, I think so. I, I guess I just wanted to get your, your view on it. Because I, yeah. I find it is an interesting topic that I don't get to talk to too many people about. Um, <laughs> so it's, <laughs> it's cool. Is there anything that you've read that you feel that you maybe would like to, to recommend or suggest? Long Walk to Freedom is definitely worth reading. Nelson Mandela's autobiography. Not, not so much spiritual, but just an incredible story of a human being. Yep. The, I got a lot out of the Bhagavad Gita which is the Hindu spirit. I'm not Hindu, but this Hindu spiritual text, I read that and I really liked their, the, the view of uh, spirituality that's, that's manifested in the story told there. What else? Um, there are, you know, there's so many, there's so many great, we're, we're talking more spiritual books. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you'd like to give some other book recommendations, I'm definitely open to that. I was going to ask you at the top when you mentioned that you, you know, like to write and, and read, but I figured we were just starting. So maybe I'd wait, but yeah, now's a good time. Go ahead. There's a, there's a book by the Dalai Lama. Uh, a, co a couple of his books I've read, the title escapes me right now. They're, they're great books. I recently read something called the book of joy, which is the story of the Dalai Lama and Bishop Desmond Tutu kind of getting together over the course of five days and talking about the subject of joy. There is, uh, if you're into recovery, there's a book called The Spirituality of Imperfection, yep. which describes spiritual traditions as they may relate to the 12 steps to, to recovery. Yeah. Th these are the books that spring to mind when it comes to spirituality. I know what's going to happen is we're going to end this recording and I'm going to think of, uh, you know, half a dozen titles. Oh, I can't believe that didn't, uh, I didn't think to, to tell Ren that, but those are some of the titles that spring to mind right now. Yeah, no, that's cool. Well, look, any that do come to mind, you can definitely message me after and I'll, I'll chuck them all in the show notes, but thanks for sharing those. I'll definitely do that as well. So let's talk a bit about your book, My Addiction and Recovery. <laughs> my addiction and recovery when you're walking down the street of your city or town and you see a person who's shambling the sidewalks and lurking in doorways high on drugs having screaming matches with people who ain't even there you see this guy who's the victim of these vast fbi conspiracies involving his family his friends everyone he's ever known you see this guy. He's got filthy clothes. He hasn't showered or brushed his teeth in months. You know, you can see this guy. At least here in America, unfortunately, we have this guy in, in probably all of our cities and many of our towns. Yeah. So when you see this guy, two questions spring to mind. Number one, you want to know 
how could this happen? What were the circumstances that led this guy to where he is? And number two, you ask yourself, is there any hope for him? My book answers both those questions for you. And you will like the answer because that guy I just described, of course, that was me mm. as recently as 2007. Yeah. And what the reader gets is the answer to her two questions or his two questions. The reader gets an experience of the possibilities for transformation. Reader understands that hope is possible, that one can escape from even the most hopeless-seeming circumstances. A reader understands what it's like to be in the depths of addiction, mental illness, horrific circumstances of not so much of the physical to some extent, but even more so of the mind. Importantly for the reader, she understands or he understands that one can rise up above those circumstances. And not only that, do so in a way that proves second chances benefit the giver as much as the receiver, if not more so in some cases. I was given second chances. I used my second chances to go from a life of petty crime, drug addiction, draining society's resources, um, cheating welfare, stealing and shoplifting, stealing from my family. I went from those circumstances to being a volunteer for the Red Cross, the American Red Cross, a volunteer for the San Francisco Fire Department. I even incredibly got the opportunity to volunteer for the FBI, the very people I was so afraid of. I worked very hard. The FBI, it was, I, I feel so much gratitude towards the FBI because they gave me a second chance. I was able to volunteer for them. In May of 2019, I was at FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C., receiving a community service award from the director of the FBI. Wow. It, it's incredible. To go from uh, that, that hopeless, drug-addicted person wearing the filthy clothes, not having showered in months, uh, stealing and draining from society, go from there to receiving a community service award from the premier law enforcement entity in America. Incredible thing. And that's what readers get. They get that re story of hope and transformation, lessons that they can apply to their own lives. And if they know someone who's struggling with addiction, ways that they can help that person too. For a beautiful time. I changed the, the time of this conversation sort of within the last 24 hours. So I appreciate you being so accommodating, especially with the current events in the world. It's a crazy time that we're alive in, but I think that more conversations like this, you know, and more messages that you, you have and you're communicating in your book is important for people to know, especially at these times, because, yeah, there are people like that in, in Melbourne and in, in cities that I've been to here in Australia. You know, I've been lucky enough to travel to the United States uh, for, for work and, and for for fun, for enjoyment um, in, you know, years gone by. And I've seen these people everywhere, you know, in my city, in my country and overseas as well. So I think if we can approach it with more, more empathy and more of an understanding, which is what you, you know, you used to be that guy, you used to be someone like that. So yeah, I think, I think it's a good thing. So thank you. Um, now, yeah, a few, we call it primary school. I think it might be called elementary school in the United States. But when you're like younger than, say, 12 or younger than 13. So when you were then, you, you used to talk about, you know, getting bullied quite a bit in the playground, in the schoolyard. Is there something that you now as a 50-year-old male or 50-year-old human 
would like to see taught in, in school from a young age? I would like to see taught the idea that you, your dreams are important, that you are a person who can pursue your dream, that you can achieve your dream. When I, I used to coach at, the, at a boys and girls club, and, uh, and this was a clubhouse in San Francisco where kids were mostly from, uh, from at-risk back, backgrounds, meaning lower socioeconomic um, circumstances. And I would work with these kids. I was teaching Krav Maga at the time, which is, uh, you know, it's like martial arts. Yeah. And I would, each time I worked with a kid, I would look her or him in the eye and I would say, you know, you can be whoever you want. You can do whatever you want. You can accomplish whatever you want, no matter what anybody says. You can be and do whoever or whatever you want in life. And I think these kinds of uh, self-confidence, this, this type of belief in oneself, these should be instilled in youth. That's a good message. How do you, how do you think that could work? I mean, obviously, you, you did those, those classes. But say, for instance, in a, in a school, what would that class look like? Do you have any ideas? I know I'm sort of putting you on the spot with this. I, there are so, so many excellent teachers out there. There are so many wonderful educators. I think we could do probably a better job of, you know, we have amazing athletes who earn incredible amounts of money and in many cases deservedly so because they, they entertain crowds and they inspire others. Why don't we also elevate teachers, you know, at least – to something approaching the level of these athletes. We have teachers in our nation's schools and in the schools of our world who bring so much joy, who educate, who transform lives. I think these teachers do as miraculous uh, uh, things, uh, feats as these athletes do. Athletes are awesome. They're great. Let's, you know, let's keep them, uh, let's, let's, you know, not disparage the athletes, but let's elevate the teachers as well. I think, uh, this would be to, to recognize incredible work that many of our teachers are doing. This would be a great way to better educate our kids. Like it. Nice one. Um, what motivates you now on a daily basis to get up every day and do the, do the work that you do? I learned very early on in recovery from methamphetamine addiction that there's got to be a spiritual pathway. There's got to be a search for spirituality. There's got to be a pursuit. You know, Rin, a hundred years ago, two guys were sitting right where you and I are sitting, trying to do exactly the same thing that we're doing now, right? I mean, it wasn't Zoom a hundred years ago, but you get the point, right? Two guys were having a conversation just like the conversation we're having a hundred years back. Where are those guys now, Rin? They're the same place you and I are going to be in a hundred years. <laughs> right? The, the point is our existence on this earth is, is relatively short and we don't have that much time to accomplish it. And a lot of people were recording this, as you mentioned, on March 20th, 2020. For me, March 20th, for you, March 21st. Mm. Times are tough for a lot of people. Believe me, I've escaped from some incredibly tough times. I, I've escaped from coming to on a floor of a jail cell with a pair of canvas shoes uh, as my pillow. I've escaped from a life of coming to in a studio apartment with a cold steel barrel of a shotgun on my chest. 
because that's where I passed out the night before waiting for gangsters to kick in my door. I've escaped from hearing disembodied voices threatening to kidnap and torture me to death. These are circumstances I've transcended, I've escaped from. As challenging as your circumstances might be now, maybe your circumstances are more challenging than mine, maybe they're less, maybe they're the same, whatever they are, find a spiritual solution. Find a spiritual pathway. Find something that's true to you. Understand that, you know, like we were saying, 100 years from now, we're going to be in the same place where people were 100 years ago. Figure out what that means to you. Figure out what spirituality means in your life, if it means anything at all, but hopefully it does. And use that as a driving force behind getting you out of the circumstances that you're in. If they're challenging, or even if you have good circumstances and you just want to make them better. Spirituality, when we pursue it, almost never hurts us. It really usually never hurts to pursue spirituality. So adopt that. That's what gets me out of bed in the morning. That's great. I love that. And I think it's a really good place to, to sort of conclude this conversation. So thank you. Before we do go though, any final things you'd like to add on what we've touched on today, where people can find you? Obviously, I'll put the, the Amazon link to your book uh, in, the, in the show notes. But yeah, is there any final thoughts or things you'd like to communicate? Please go to my website. You can get my book. You can sign up for my newsletter. I have a weekly newsletter every Wednesday. It's called Meditations on Meth. It's about topics including spirituality, recovery, criminal justice reform. My website is www.edkresy.com. Just my name, www.edkresy.com. Push the, the button in the lower right, uh, download PDF, you get a free PDF, you get my newsletter, and uh, hopefully you'll get my book and you get something out of it. Beautiful, Ed. Thanks so much for, for taking the time. I appreciate it so much and I hope uh, yeah, everyone listening really enjoyed it too. I certainly did. This is great. Thanks, Ren. Appreciate it. You're welcome, mate. So there you have it. Another episode there. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Ed Cressy. I learned so much about drug use and addiction. I've been reading his book as well and it's a real insight into all of his life in, in greater detail than what we spoke about in this one hour conversation. So I do recommend checking that out. Get over to his website and if there was anything that you think a friend of yours family member might have you know gotten out of this conversation i'd love for you to share this conversation with them just send them a link or share it in your you know social media stories it means so much and uh there definitely won't be four months between this episode and the next one i've got plenty of guests lined up and episodes ready to drop so i'll see you next week thanks so much and all the very best